Kessler here from Grunthal. Paul Kingsley with the 30-second board to five. Brian, the gate is down. This is a sharp left-hander. Who's going to shot? Looks like Darcy Lange on that Richmond Gallup. Kawasaki gets the jump. That's where it all started. Big MX Radio is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. Fox Racing Canada, Phoenix Handlebars, Guts Racing, Throttle Timepieces, Get Shit Done Coffee, Reverend Motors, 204 Skate Shop, and Throttle Syndicate make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Hello and welcome to episode 849 of the Big MX Radio podcast. And boy, do we have a great one in store for you. The great Denny Stevenson, the 1990 East Coast 125 Supercross champion. He's an absolute character. Uh, he's the character of all characters, really, in the sport of motocross. He's been around for so long. He's been through it all and uh, now living in Omaha, Nebraska, where he uh, born, raised, and, and uh, cut his teeth racing. And uh, he comes on the podcast. This is a long time coming. I tried to get uh, De- Denny on the show uh, a number of years ago. Uh, he's a bit slippery at times, but I'm so proud to have had him on. And uh, it was a really good conversation. He was uh, about to go get groceries, so I didn't want to keep him forever. But uh, that just means that we're going to have to uh, make him a repeat offender and have him come back on the podcast to chit-chat a little bit more about his, his career uh, and some of those highlighted moments. Um, if you haven't already gone to BigMXRadio.com to uh, enter a raffle, really appreciate everybody who does. Uh, what we're trying to do is, um, because riding clinics was such a linchpin to me falling in love with this sport, uh, I thought it would be really cool, uh, rather than uh, put some money towards uh, uh, like funding privateer efforts or uh, helping out some, uh, some privateers who race, because uh, Mathis does such a great job of that. The Pulpamex show does a, a great job to raise money for those guys. Uh, I want to give back to the grassroots of the sport. I wanted to uh, go back to where it all begins and um, falling in love with the sport and having somebody uh, take you along to uh, learn more about just increasing your sense of mastery on the track. Uh, I think that's a really important thing, and I wanted to be able to provide that for people. So that's why I started the the raffle. And there's 14... Uh, 14 prizes in total, uh, first and foremost being a brand new 2022 YZ252 stroke that I'm picking up from Blackfoot Motorsports in Calgary, um, and uh, that's going to be fantastic to go down out there and pick it up. Uh, that'll be there soon, uh, and I think I'll be picking that up uh, sometime around Easter, go out uh, and uh, maybe do some mountain biking, maybe do some uh, riding of my own. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll see Adam Pfeiffer at the track. Maybe I'll see, uh, Deanna or, uh, uh, Danica White, some of that. Um, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that. So go check it out. Honestly, uh, one ticket, $20. You want three tickets, give yourself triple the chances uh, of winning, um, $50. And if you want to uh, in, really increase your chances, go, go for the 10 pack, 120 bucks US, uh, and you get a brand new dirt bike. Honestly, there's only a thousand tickets available for this thing. So if you buy 10 tickets, uh, you instantly have a one in 100 chance of winning the bike, uh, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, and then you also have an opportunity to win uh, as many as nine other prizes. I, I, I don't, I don't think, uh, by no means do I think that one person's going to win uh, all 14 prizes, uh, but uh, they could if they buy enough tickets. I suppose everyone's got a great chance to win something, and uh, hopefully we'll connect some people with some awesome prizes, and we'll be able to put on an unforgettable uh, riding clinic and teach some kids how to race uh, dirt bikes, or even maybe some adults to race dirt bikes. Uh, it'll be kind of... Uh, um, all ages uh, sort of thing. And uh, hopefully we'll have some prizes for that as well. Uh, stay tuned for when and where we're going to be hosting that this summer. Um, check out this podcast. This is going to be an awesome. This is going to be a great uh, episode. Uh, in the middle, you'll also, uh, uh, we, we're bringing on Alden Baker, uh, the preeminent trainer within the sport of motocross. He's worked with the who's who, the names among names. Uh, basically, the only guy who's won a significant amount of championships over the last 20 years who hasn't worked with Alden is Chad Reed. Uh, and, and that's just because... Uh, um, Alden worked with all of his competitors, and then that's just that. Like uh, I guess uh, uh, another guy you can think of that hasn't worked with Alden is uh, uh, Eli Tomac, but uh, yeah, just about everybody else has uh, been under the tutelage of Alden, and uh, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, I love bringing him on the show. He's a really entertaining guy. Uh, he's well spoken. Uh, he's he's he doesn't really give you a lot of fluff. Um, he's straightforward. And I, I think I, I have a lot of respect for that. So that's why I bring him on the show. And, uh, we obviously get in a little bit as to, uh, Cooper Webb leaving the fray and then coming back. So, uh, already four minutes into this and you guys haven't heard anything from David, uh, Denny Stevenson. So listen to this podcast, enjoy it. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast, brought to you by Fox Racing Canada. Go to your local dealer, check out the full catalog, and get dressed head to toe today. This podcast also brought to you by Guts Racing and Phoenix Handlebars. Go check out both those websites and uh, contact them directly if you want to save some money with either one of those brands. Awesome stuff. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With me on the line, someone that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a long period of time. He's an absolute legend within the sport. Former champion, the 1990 125 East Coast Championship that he won. You you know him as Debo360 on Instagram, uh, and he's always a fun follow. Uh, great, great knowledge, and he recently did a great podcast, three hours plus, with none other than David Pingree. Denny Stevenson, how's it going? What's happening, Brad? Thanks for having me. And yeah, it was, it was, I think it was between Chicken Show and the Bud, Bud Man Show. Uh, yeah, I think we were pushing like close to six, seven hours with Pingree. So um, great, great day, great trip to San Diego, and always good to share some talks with some friends. And, and now here we are talking. And I remembered some old stories I hadn't shared during that, uh, that process and uh, wanted to hit you back up and, and make this happen. Absolutely. So if, if you're if you're going to listen to this podcast, I, I gen- genuinely encourage you to go listen to the Whiskey Throttle show as well. It's uh, it's going to be a little bit more in depth. Uh, this is going to be uh, a podcast that sort of adds a little bit, maybe so kind of colors in uh, some of those stories and some of the things that didn't get touched on. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, of David. He's a he's a diligent guy. He he is a, a real method to his madness when it comes to um, like constructing the interviews and it's so funny when you he's he's on there with guys who just kind of get want to get ahead and and talk about uh the the championship year back when they're still talking about uh the first days on two wheels but yeah go check out the whiskey throttle show both those podcasts came out in the last two weeks and uh yours is a doozy man you and the bud man uh basically um 
like you guys are synonymous with each other without without one there pretty much isn't the other especially when it came to arena cross in the late 90s early 2000s um but uh th- thanks for making time on the podcast and and wanting to uh, hit me up to elaborate on some of those stories absolutely yeah and a touch base on bud man i mean he's family yeah i was best man in his wedding he was best man in my wedding you know we know each other's kids obviously we've known each other for shoot i'm 51 now i think i met him when i was 15 16 so you can do the math on that but yeah great friend it was great to sit down with him and, and just see him in san diego it was one of the first times i'd seen him in a while ping had flown me out to catch the san diego supercross prior and then do the show so it was one of the first times i'd seen bud and shoot probably probably a few years so um and just see anybody in san diego just get to a supercross it had been through shoot two probably two years since the covid stuff since i made a I made a round and um, just to be there and catch up with everybody in, in California, a lot of Southern California friends and people. It was awesome. And, and the race turned out to be a great night of racing with, with Anderson picking up his first win. Absolutely. No doubt. That, that's uh, always good to see. Uh, we've had, we had a myriad of different guys winning races. Now it's just Eli Tomac, four races in a row. Uh, championship is a little bit, uh, it's get, it's getting a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, but yeah, when you roll into town at San Diego, I believe that was the second, third or fourth round of the series. Um, that, that it's just like it's it's the place to be see and be seen and uh reconnecting with uh, all those people that uh like it's almost like a, a, a traveling high school it, it is the motocross series like you guys don't see each other much during the week you reconvene on weekends uh and you were a big part of it for a lot of years like in the early late 80s all the way through the mid 2000s when uh, when you were doing some of the the uh, color commentary on the on the broadcast both indoors and out yeah, it, it, you nailed it perfectly. I mean, it really is like a high school reunion. You, you know, I, I don't talk to you really anyone I went to school with it these days, but everyone you know is through racing. You keep up with them through social media. You know, you, you haven't seen guys in, in a few years, maybe sometimes five years, and as soon as you see them, you slip right into that friendship and uh, and, and the stories that we used to, to, to go to and tell when uh, when we were racing together. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great, great family. I think a ton of support. You know, I ran into Rhino when I was there, and I ran into Donnie Hansen. I ran into Josh Hansen. And, you know, guys I just haven't seen for years and, uh, you know, and everybody's touching base, catching up with what's going on in each other's lives and, uh, and, and, and watching racing and drinking some beers. And, and then you go out that night and you're catching up with some of the riders who are out hanging out and hung out with Stank a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it's good to see there's still some, uh, still some riders with some fire in them, uh, for the after parties and, um, which I always enjoyed, uh, probably too much in my career, but, uh, we were talking earlier that, you know, the riders today are, are slipping into some great training aspect, great, uh, you know, each team as a trainer. And, and, and I'd never had anything like that when I was growing up. And, you know, the joke is with, with Bud Man, Bud Man signed a Suzuki contract when he was 16. And, you know, they, they hand him a flight and said, hey, we'll see you at the races. You know, I think uh, it's such a benefit to have the training, the training facilities and everything for these riders today to come up and, uh, and just be fully prepared for what's going to hit them on, on race day. Certainly. I think you just hit the nail on the head. Like It really allows teams to start uh, providing more value for the sponsors or at least prove that the work is being put in. Uh, because like you said, back in the day, you sign a kid to a contract. He's in either Omaha, Nebraska or or uh, Missouri, like a like a. Uh, Jeff Emig, and uh, you ship off the practice bike, and you, you expect to see the kid uh, on on race day, but really you, you don't really know what happens in between. You you assume he's going to do his motos, and uh, when he's looking for parts, that probably means he's been doing some riding. Uh, but really, there's there's no documentation going on. And nowadays, with the the birth of social media, uh, it's 24/7, round the clock, all of the different snippets and edits and little videos to to basically uh, to uh, to prove the work is being put in. 
and 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 uh, first and foremost, the work is actually being put in. Is, is that uh, guys like uh, Gareth Swanepoel, uh, guys like Alden Baker, who will be featured in this podcast a little bit later on, uh, are shaping these guys into absolute superstars who can uh, can not only put on the laps, but they can do it consistently over time, lap after lap after lap. Uh, I would argue sometimes it still burns guys out a little bit uh, here and there, but uh, I think the sport's better because of it. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said perfectly, that it, they're held accountable. You know, we really, we really weren't held accountable. Like, yeah, when you went home, they were just hoping you're doing your work, and uh, sometimes we were, sometimes we weren't. But uh, I've always said that, you know, if I had the choice between the career I had or, you know, a career like, you know, LaRocco or Kudrowski had, you know, obviously they had but far more success, but, you know, I guarantee I had a hell of a lot more fun. And I think that was the thing is I was such a fan of the sport, having such a good time and just realizing, man, I'm, I, I'm having experience. I'm having experiences I may never have for the rest of my life. And I really wanted to enjoy them and make the most of every weekend, whether it was on the track, off the track, chasing girls, um, you know, or just, you know, riding your ass as hard as you could. And then just, just keeping that, that intensity on the track, off the track. And I think that was kind of what we did in the nineties. It was just, um, you kept the, you kept the, 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 this, the fire burning on and off the track before and after the races. hundred percent. Like, I, I don't think at any point, uh, during, uh, say, uh, Aaron Plessinger living with, uh, Cooper Webb, that, uh, Cooper Webb's wife's come, comes into the room and says, Aaron, who are these whores? <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, the parties we had with Fro, when I, I'd go out there and stay with Fro for a while and, you know, one year we had this Halloween festival party. I call it the Fro Daddy Halloween Festival. And, you know, his, his nickname, I gave him one weekend. I was at the house and I, I drew up on a piece of paper in bubble letters, like graffiti letters, that Jeff Fro's a homo. Mm. And I came back about a month later and all of a sudden his nickname is now Jeff Fro. And then it evolved to Fro. So, and that was Fro Daddy because everybody had to have daddy at the end of their name, you know. Of course. Um, we, had, we had a huge Halloween party one year, which was so crazy. And, uh, you know, we had Strung Out come play. You know, Jordan Burns, uh, the drummer from Moto Triple X, uh, was it kind of got was the end for it for them to, for them to come, and I think we had had at least pretty much the entire industry there that night. We had strung out ends up in the pool, um, playing with a live mic, lead singers in there, and next you know a, he- a police helicopter comes over the top of of the party. You know, obviously Stro kind of lived in some acreages out there in Riverside back at the time. Right. And somebody obviously called the cops because there's a, a cop helicopter over the top of the spotlight on the party as the lead singer from Strong Out gets the entire party flipping off the helicopter yelling, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And, I mean, that just kind of represents the entire 90s right there. It's just everyone was there. McGrath, the mechanics, John Norfolk, Skip Norfolk, um, Phil Lawrence, you know, Pingree, Budman. It was just the whole entire industry just celebrating life, you know, enjoying it, man. We have a great time, a great career. Let's uh, let's just carry it into the uh, into the party lifestyle a little bit as well. What were some of these costumes like? If you got characters like that, like those people would dress up like those guys as like to to be a character. I can only imagine what what those guys dr- dressed up as to uh, to go out on the town. Like uh, who would have won uh, best best um, best costume in the night? Well, the, the great thing about California is you're, you're not too far from Hollywood, you know, huge costume stores, you know, far more elaborate than say your, your normal Halloween, you know, store that's on the corner, you know, Hobby Lobby or something like that. Right. And we had some elaborate stuff. I think Tishner was out there for that weekend. He had some elaborate, uh, he went as an Indian and had this full on leather 
you know, outfit that was made out of suede and stuff and, and just full of expensive creation. I think I was a cowboy, so I had chaps on and a cowboy hat. Well, I think McGrath was dressed up as a cone head. Uh, Fro, I think, had his usual Fro uh, disco outfit on. And we, well, the thing was, we all ended up in the pool. So these $1,000 costumes just got just destroyed. And I remember when we went back, we basically took it back to the lady in a, in a garbage bag and kind of we had laid it all out in the sun, hoping it would dry up. And, you know, suede and, and leather don't really mix with water. Everything pretty much shriveled up like a shrinky dink. And she was not happy. I remember we took it back. But everybody went all in, as we always did. I think we sold T-shirts. We had a quarter john. We had we put uh, dry ice in the hot tub. The thing was steaming. And um, we sold T-shirts. You know, again, we handed out, like, it was like 10 bucks to get in for, you know, keg beer, whatever. And... Um, we just took everything to the next level, and that was just part of it. Let's make this party as big and as crazy as possible, and it, it went off like that. Yeah, it was nuts. That that that's outstanding. I I, I gotta I gotta think that uh, like that that party itself might have rivaled three weeks in Brazil when you went down there with uh, with the crusty guys. Well, the Brazil was great. You know, I uh, they called me up um, from home. I think I might have been just coming off an injury. And they asked, you know, obviously been friends with those guys. I think this was maybe for Krusty too. And we already shot Krusty one with Fro and the, and the Z50s and Budman and Ping and uh, Dean Gibson in the backyard of Fro's house. Um, like that day, they came off of that. We, Fro had one Z50. We're kind of taking lap times around this little circle. He had in his backyard. And the Krusty guys, John Freeman and David, Dana Nicholson, said they were coming out to the house. We wanted to film you. So Fro and uh, I ran down to Chaparral. He picked up two new Z50s, brought them back to the house. Got them all worked on, ready for, the, for them to come out. And that morning they were coming. We drugged the garden hose out to the backyard, covered the track in just mud and grease, and which made for just an epic, you know, motos and everything else. And and that was uh, the video with, with Budman won uh, the five dollars for a win and best takeout move. And uh, and then it just elaborately grew. And just obviously the, the movie came out, which is a huge success. And with that kind of success, that those guys had more money to do crazy things. And for Krusty too, they they took myself, Kerry Hart, Grayson Goodman from Texas, and Arena Crosser and Motocross Supercrosser, and Seth Enslow down to Brazil for basically three weeks to just shoot, riding the jungles, riding on the white beaches, riding just through the, the little towns and cities, and it was insane, man. It was, um, you know, to be in Brazil for three weeks uh, with no responsibility other than riding and just. Uh, whatever shenanigans we could get into. I mean, we would, we had, I think the guy who owns bro, uh, three brothers racing uh, is a shop in, in Sandy and uh, Southern California somewhere. He's Brazilian. Their family's Brazilian. So he was kind of our guide to be over there. And we would bomb to, to Brazil just from one little small town to the other in the middle of the night with three bikes in the back of the truck, all of our bags and seven of us in the trunk. <laughs> Cause, because they said, well, we had to go at night because we had to hide from the bandit banditos or they would, you know, Pull, which I, you know, make you look back at it, it doesn't seem like it seems like nighttime would be a lot more dangerous. I was gonna say, but, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I did my first hit of acid that week, that was three weeks, and uh, which was a bad trip. Don't ever do that, kids. And we, uh, Craig, Carrie Hart had gotten hurt, I didn't have a bike there, so I rode Carrie's 250 YT250 the whole most of the trip after he'd gotten hurt. But just being able to bomb down the beaches without any repercussions, like they were totally cool with it, all the kids would come out. You know, we'd give out gear, whatever we had, we could give away to the kids. And uh, we flew into Sao Paulo, bombed around the country for those times, period. And then we flew out of Rio, but we had like a couple days in Rio left before we flew out. So we go out to this club 
that's across the street from the hotel and it says discotheque on the sign. So we all roll into this discotheque and, you know, tons of hot chicks. They're all done up in, you know, evening gowns and stuff, which we, as it turns out, it should have been a dead giveaway. But I started talking to this blonde girl. I kept trying to get her a dance, try to get her a drink. And she kept kind of, she spoke a little English and she's kind of just like, no, no, I, you know, I've, and then she'd walk off and she'd, she'd come back to the bar while I was standing and we're all sitting. And I'd ask her again, if I, she goes, hey, you know, can I tell you, can I be honest with you? And I'm like, yeah, please do. She goes, well, you guys are apparently on our, you know, broken Brazilian English, uh, Portuguese, I guess, mm-hmm. um, that uh, we are in a whorehouse and they are all whores. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, I was not expecting that. But I guess now that I look at you, how well dressed you are and in the middle of an afternoon and they're like five o'clock in Brazil time that I should have known better. And it reminds me year later, years later at the Rio Olympics, uh, the, the American basketball team got caught into a very similar situation because uh, apparently in Brazil they did not they did not mark the whorehouses very obvious and they're just in the middle of downtown uh, Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> there you go. And they, it, it can happen to you. If it can happen to an Olympian, it can happen to Denny yeah. Stevenson. I, I didn't um, feel so bad at that point when uh, when I think uh, it was Harden that was that walk, was the one that got caught walking out like the team came walking out and then the media got a hold of it. And, yeah, then that was their excuse that they didn't know it was a whorehouse. So I'm like, hey, I can actually, I can actually uh, relate to that. I, I, I actually believe them. <laughs> yeah, they, they, I, I, I buy it, no problem, and that, that's hilarious. Uh, so once you did find out that it was in fact a whorehouse, what's Denny Stevenson's move then? Well, I didn't have a lot of uh, Brazilian cash on me at the time, okay. but uh, I, I, I actually befriended the girl, and she came back to the hotel, like met us the next day at the ho- at the hotel hung out, uh, you know, we were right off the beach. So we all went to the beach and just hung out. And um, yeah, it was just a kind of a normal day with a normal girl who turned out to be uh, an escort, I guess. So, um, but yeah, I mean, at that time in your life and you're, after thing we've been through it, you don't even feel anything twice. You're like, oh, okay, this seems kind of normal, you know? For yeah. sure. Well, with, with when you have as many ridiculous stories as you have, Denny, uh, like the a story like that kind of gets lost in the wash a little bit. Uh, it just seems like it's another Wednesday night. Um, but uh, like, did you guys do like? Was there <laughs> like? Um, obviously, like you guys were, didn't speak Portuguese. What is? Was there like any type of like thriving motocross? Uh, community down there obviously we remember guys uh, going down there and, and racing quite a bit throughout the 80s uh, I think maybe it, it uh, had a little bit of a downturn or, or not as popular throughout the 90s but because uh, if, if I'm not mistaken like uh, guys like uh, uh, Keith Turpin and uh, um, who else am I thinking yeah. of uh, like Paul Hoffman, maybe yeah um, and like Tishner would go down there and race that series yeah, I think they those guys. Yeah, I know Tishner went to Japan and raced for for some years. Roddy and, Smith. You know, I, I remember I remember like some certain guys going down there and racing. I I honestly don't remember us going to any kind of specific track or running into other type of riders. It was um, like I said, the guy who are who are kind of a tour guy just knew areas and different parts of uh, of, of land and you know kind of like you know kind of riding the hills in Southern California or, or anywhere you know whatever city or state you're in that, that's not a track. They just kind of know locations and that's basically where we rode. And, um, yeah, I don't really remember anybody, you know, we stayed at, at some of the family's homes that, that they knew throughout the time off and on. And, but I honestly don't remember actually going to any type of track or running the other type of racers. It was just more of us kind of just free riding and then film this ride through the jungles, like I said, and on the beach. And then we kind of found some crazy hits uh, off the beach when they had these big piles of sand and stuff. Um, yeah, it, it was just, you know, 
I think I think we probably we party pretty hard too. So my, my, some of my memory might be missing. <laughs> might be missing. Sounds like you guys did everything but moto, uh, and that's totally fine. You're in Brazil after all. Uh, but yeah. what happens when you jump across the pond uh, sometime in the fall, uh, and you end up duct taping Jeff Stanton in the beautiful city of Paris? You know, it just goes into the, again. I just you know, I, I got to race Bercy a couple times in my career. Um, first time I went over was in 89, end of 89, I had signed a factory Honda contract, um, which ended up not coming to fruition. Honda ended up dropping the 125 program so they could bring Bale over. So at the last minute, I ended up signing, I called Pat Alexander back at Suzuki and said, hey man, uh, you know, the Honda deal fell through. Is that Suzuki deal still available? And Pat's like, well, okay, let me, let me make some calls, get back to you. And fortunately, um, Pat was able to make some things happen and I had given a two-year contract with Suzuki, but back to Bercy, I, I had already committed to riding a Honda over there, a Honda 250. So I uh, had Malcolm Smith, uh, I was Emma, Malcolm Smith sponsor at the time, a rider, and they made me a pair of pants that had budget cut on the butt. And I went to Bercy to ride a CR250 Honda that I'd never raced before in my life. Uh, it was pretty much stock with some handlebars. And I had to race against Stanton and RJ and Bale. And needless to say, I got my ass kicked you know i did i didn't show up on a 250 quite like bradshaw and, and win in japan um but then the next year i came back and they had they created a 125 class so myself and budman and fro uh all bombed over there to race against uh the gp guys like everett's was the big guy at the time on the 125 um alberton was there there was just a ton of ton of talent young talent over there the we came over craig came over i think to lawrence it was basically Americans versus Europeans, and it was probably we raced four nights there. We raced, I think, we raced the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or maybe went Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Sunday. I don't know. It was it was four days, four nights of just racing and bombing through down those hallways that they ran in Bercy, and probably the most aggressive, intense racing I've ever raced in my life. Because for how many times you had to race, and one of the nights we uh, we had a we had a big guy who was French who was. Uh, who was uh, designated to be our guide over there and kind of keep us out of trouble, keep the riders and stuff. Well, one night, Budman and I had convinced him to, we were going to get Stanton for some reason. I don't know why we were going to get Jeff. Probably because Jeff is usually pretty pretty reserved. It was probably the last night. I, I don't know when, what night it was, but we convinced him to basically, he literally kicked down Jeff's door. Kicked it That's how you door convinced him. him, yes, by force. Just like, hey, man, why don't, you, why don't we mess with Jeff? And he knew Jeff. Like, hey, Jeff's great, man, let's, let's just do it. So we convinced him to just kick he kicked the door off the hinges, busted the door down, and we find Jeff hiding on the other side of the bed. And so we all jump on, on Jeff, and he's just in a pair of boxers. He's, he's basically asleep. And, you know, he was a good sport about it. So he lets us basically, you know, we'd like to say we kick Jeff's ass, but, you know, no one's kicking Jeff six times ass. He basically let us duct tape him to the, the office chair in, the, in his hotel room. And so we roll him out throw him onto the elevator and hit, hit, you know, down the lobby. So we're all laughing, thinking, oh, yeah, he's going to come out the lobby. He's going to be all taped up. People are going to be laughing at him. Well, we're following the lights as they're going down, and all of a sudden it stops, and all of a sudden it starts coming back up, the elevator does. And the door is open, <laughs> and Jeff had managed to rip all the duct tape off from <laughs> the chair, and he's standing on top of the chair in his best Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, uh, pose, just fully in his underwear, just posing, laughing his ass off, and basically just uh, just killed the room. You know, just we died laughing because you know who, who expected Jeff Stan to be quite as funny as he turned out to be. But you know, again, that was just 
we were having so much fun together, everybody, you know, I don't know if guys are doing that today when they go, obviously they're not, not, not as many guys are going to as many races we used to overseas, but um, you know, it's just memories like that, that, you know, and, and somebody who's successful as he was, was, was still as lighthearted and enjoyed it and crushed it as he did uh, with quite an ending like that. You know, there you go. Six time can even surprise you. The guy having himself some fun over in, uh, in Paris. And with that being said, Debo, I think it's a great time right now to throw it to our featured interview for this podcast brought to you by Fox Racing Canada. Check out your local dealer as well as Phoenix Handlebars and Guts Racing as well as Get Shit Done Coffee and Throttle Timepieces. This interview is brought to you by Fox Racing Canada. Go check out your local dealer here with Alden Baker. And now, as promised, here on the Big MX Radio Podcast, this interview brought to you by Phoenix Handlebars as well as Fox Racing Canada. Go to your Fox Racing Canada dealer now and stock up for your riding season. The summer is right around the corner. This is literally just the second day of spring. Alden Baker here on the Big MX Radio Podcast for the third time. Alden, how's it going? Good and you, Brad. Yeah, no, really excited to obviously be back on your your uh, show so yeah everything's been going pretty good thank you thank you for making the time my friend third time in as many years coming on the podcast to pick your brain uh, i myself uh, uh an athlete pride myself on on, on having a, a well of knowledge on that side of this sport um but when it comes to the like the kind of the 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 holy grail of trainers, guys who have worked with the absolute pinnacle, uh, taking guys to championships uh, and, and been there for a lot of them. Uh, it, it's it's Alden Baker and then it's everybody else. Uh, thank you again for making time for me. No, well, thank you, Brett, and thanks for the kind words, man. It's uh, As you know, the sport's always a challenge and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, been awesome and, and we'll continue you know, pushing the boundaries and, and, and carrying on as we do. 100%. And I do appreciate uh, you saying that. Motocross is, the, in my opinion, one of the most physically demanding sports in the world, and it requires a very unique skill set from the athlete as well as physical attributes that are pretty unheard of anywhere else. Uh, you, of course, I, I believe worked with, with cyclists predominantly before moving over to, to motocross. I'm sure that's, uh, there's still a, a little bit of that knowledge that you accrued there that still gets put into place. Um, but one thing that I've never asked you is how did you end up coming over to motocross uh, and, and basically make that your... Um, focus and, and main field of study because uh you as a trainer um came to this after after many years of not only being an athlete but also training some athletes as well yeah well brad it was you know i was brought in to actually fix an athlete in the cardio and the strength and the nutrition side because that's what i had the most knowledge in now um I used to do road racing back in the early days before I went into bicycling. Okay. Uh, so I always had a passion for basically motorcycles. You know, um, I couldn't afford a, a, a dirt bike back in the day, but I had family that was linked to, to, to some road racing. So I, you know, got involved with that until the, the army actually took, took away from, from that program. But the, the whole thing was I was brought in to do, to get, I mean, Carmichael, you know, my whole deal there was nothing to do with the motorcycle at that point. It was all to do with um, the cardio training, the getting him back, you know, like in good condition, 
and uh, and getting the strength right. So that's how it started. Then obviously, as I started to see the whole you know program, then it it got me into where okay, I could balance out different scenarios that I saw regarding the load of what the motorcycle was doing to the guy, what incorporated training, you know, a motorcycle guy and all of that, you know, that phase. So basically was thrown in the deep end and then had to evolve through all of that. Certainly. And, and throwing you in the deep end big time with, uh, at that time, one of the hottest young prospects to, to enter the, the 250 class, Ricky Carmichael, mm. uh, he, he would then go on uh, to never not defend a title that he won if he did race that following year. Of course, the only one that sort of sticks out to a lot of people, the 2004 Supercross Championship. He does a knee, doesn't participate in the championship. To me, that's not a defense if you didn't get an opportunity to even line up. Um, yeah. When you first came, came across Ricky, um, did you see the potential physically it, within within his capabilities that you were going to be able to, uh, if he followed the, the program to a T, to the letter, um, that you'd be able to unlock what would end up becoming one of the most, uh, like, just bulletproof athletes, like, durable, strong, la- like, you know what I mean? Like he, he checked off yeah. a lot of boxes, but I don't think he was really there when you when you first like kind of came to him. Uh, did, but did you see the potential? I mean, I saw obviously that there was potential with his talent as a motorcycle rider. You know, obviously he had done really well on a 125. Um, I think he only got hold of me when it started to go sort of wrong on the 250 when he was struggling where he had the ability to ride, but he couldn't maintain it. So... You know, I was brought in, and, and it was actually through a recommendation through Johnny O'Mara to come in and, and help and actually go and live with him and analyze every part of everything and try and help. So to answer your question, I, I didn't really analyze like, okay, heck, this guy has everything. I just It was more I have a job to do, and that's get him fit and stronger than what he is, but he's, he wasn't a very big kid, you know, I mean, you know, not, uh, you know, the little sort of a little guy in a way. Yes. Was he, was he a little out of condition for sure? But my job was to do everything in my power and with the knowledge that I had to get him in, in order to. So it's sort of me, like I said, I wanted to make sure that I was doing the job that I was brought in to do. Then it, you know, evolved where I started to learn a lot of how he applied himself to things, his grit, um, his his heart, his desire, all of those things I didn't know out of the gate, but it developed. And, and obviously, yes, living with a guy and being with him, you know, <laughs> basically all the time, you learn a lot. And it, then it helps you develop the plan around all those scenarios. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I uh, last question I have on Ricky because I just, I could just pick your brain about Ricky for twenty minutes, but uh, I, I wonder <laughs> what was the most uh, the like stickiest um, for him as far as like a a pain point of, of, of transitioning over to a programmer. Like, what was he most stubborn about? I'd say the nutrition because I think the whole idea of nutrition is it's different for 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 different people. Um, and I think he was eating linked to the thought that that's the only way I have energy, you know? So there was a transition. And I think that was the hardest form for him. You know, he, he, he had, a, you know, a slower metabolism. His genetics didn't really promote 
the lean athlete that everyone would think. So I think that was a very difficult um, and, and for sure the hardest part of all the training. I mean, everything else he was committed to um, and, and he didn't have any problems putting in the hard work or sweating on any given day. Uh, I think the diet was the hardest for for him to 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 keep applying that and how how strict it needed to be in order to get you know get him to where I felt that that was the, the you know the way and the most economical way he could be uh, a, a good motorcycle rider. And then last lastly, how did you get him to buy in? If that's the one thing that was sort of really holding him back, what was that like sort of aha moment where he looked at you and, and with true belief that uh, there's a method to this madness, and uh, if you follow the program, you can you can do some special things. Well, I mean, you know, initially when when he contracted to me to come and help him, he bought in right then. It wasn't that I ever went a period with him where he was still wondering. You know, he okay. did listen to everything. He did apply himself. I think the biggest thing, and it's in the sport, is you've got to get everyone aligned with that because it's not like the athlete and you, that's just you too. You, you know, there's the team involved, there's parents involved, there's, there's a lot of people that have their opinion, or, and, and especially when a kid is still very young, you know, it's, it, you know, they're not just left to their own demise. There's, there's a bit of a pattern that you've got to kind of line up with in order to get everybody on board with, hey, this is the way I'm going. And there again, we were kind of breaking new ground because sort of no one had done that before. So it wasn't like I could tell him, listen, I've had one of you guys before and this is what we did and we're good. It was, you know, I was going on and at any point if it didn't work out, I can assure you I wouldn't, I was going to be, I would have had to move on, you know. So uh, it was, there was a lot of dynamics from either side um, and accountability, which, like I said, was, I don't have a problem with that. I think it was really good, and it actually kept us sharp. Absolutely. I think that's uh, really what was a springboard that would uh, lead to dozens of championships down the road uh, with a number of uh, the sports superstars, uh, including guys like uh, James Stewart, uh, Ryan Villapoto, and that other Ryan guy, I can't remember his last name, Dungey. <laughs> You know, everybody knows that guy. Um, so, yeah. but who's who's in the stable right now, and uh, who follows it to the who who follows the program closest, and who misbehaves? Oh, well, I mean, it depends on the day. So, look, basically, <laughs> on the program at the moment is, um, you know, I've got the new guards, which has been exciting, and that's Malcolm and 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 AP Aaron Pessinger, um, and then I've got sort of what I call the, the the hardened existing guys, and that's, uh, you know, Coop and, and RJ. Obviously, yes, Coop did leave for a period, um, and uh, and then now he's he's back. But as for the group, that's that's who, who I have under 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 me at, at the moment. And, look, they all apply themselves. I don't – I think at this level, I I've never have a problem where the guys are not willing to put in the work or apply themselves. It's just balancing it out and – and making sure that that application is in the right area, you know, as we go through a season or wherever we are in the in in the part of the year, you know. Absolutely, and, and motocross being an incredibly abrasive sport on the body, uh, mm. like it, you're you're always dealing with something, something's nagging. Uh, the only way to to 
to practice for the sport. It's not like in, in football where you can abolish padded practices and take the hitting away from it. You you have to hit the yeah. whoops as fast as you can. You have to hit the, the, the corners as fast as you can. Uh, and, and, and guys are, are on the edge. They, they, they go down during yeah. uh, during training training laps, uh, testing uh, and all, everything else in between. Um, like managing injuries on top of fitness that has got to be a balancing act that of course you've, you've gotten better at over the years. Um, uh, but every single year would probably throw some, uh, some new different things at you. Yeah, no, that's, that's true, Brad. Uh, and, and the problem is it always depends on what type of injury, but there, the amount of riding and at what, at the level that they have to ride at, you know, that's, that's always a, an, an issue where they're on that edge. And, um, and sometimes when it doesn't go, you know, too good. Yes, it, it hurts. And managing that and, and trying to get the best so that they can be the best weekend and weekend out is it's it's definitely a challenge. And and for each guy, there's there's different scenarios. So uh, yeah, I, like you say, I mean, there's there's no other sport that has so many pieces that have to be, you know, set in place consistently every day. Um, so, and that's what makes this this sport, you know, pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah. But uh, like I said, it's it is a challenge each day to get all those little pieces in line to get the best out of each each guy as you you know you try and maintain and go racing. Hundred percent. And you, you've been lining those pieces back up for Cooper Webb once again, uh, welcoming him back into the fray. Mm. Uh, take us take us through, if you could, the process of uh, initially Coop deciding that he'd like to train elsewhere. He'd like to explore different uh, different training methods, different trainer in general, uh, and, and the process of him uh, whether he he approached you to come back or you approached him to come back. Was it a KTM thing? Did they instruct him to do so? Um, and then like kind of getting getting back together so to speak like uh mm. um like almost kind of going into the x-files if you want to uh refer to it in a relationship sort of thing uh what's that been like for you and uh and look, yeah you know i mean look each athlete is is very different on how they approach things um obviously coop knew that my system and heck we've been together for three years and, 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 and obviously we know the results have not been terrible. I mean, things have gone well, but I think as a rider develops and he wins a championship and he, and he has to try and back that up and keep doing that, you know, dynamics change in the way that they think on how they need to keep basically moving forward, you know, and there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all do that. Um, I think it becomes where, and I think for Coop, it was more looking at, you know, I, I still have to take care of a group, no matter what. And I think the thought pattern was, you know, it, I'd like to be where it, the focus is all on me, you know, and obviously I can't do that. I mean, I, I do on, on typically between three and four guys, but right. we do work as a group and, and there are benefits to that. And then there are also negative parts to that. I mean, going back to, the Ricky days, the difference there was my focus was completely all on Ricky. But there would have been, I think, benefits, but it wasn't options back in those days where could he have probably honed his skills a little bit easier or better having a good guy to ride with? Well, you know, we don't know. But today we have those options. And I think it helps the guys on the riding for sure because it keeps them sharp consistently. But the dynamic where 
all the focus is on one guy, that that isn't, you know. Um, so I think for Coop, he was sort of looking like, okay, how could I get the focus directly all on me? And maybe that'll make me, you know, just a little bit better on, in, in everything that I do. Um, and that's a decision that, you know, that he, that was very valid for him to, to, to look at. Um, so, you know, he tried something a little different with regards to that focus all on him um, and that scenario. And, you know, evidently it, it didn't quite work out the way I think he was. And that's one thing is I give Coop credit because it's not like he was trying to take an easy way out. He was trying to look for other areas that could maybe make him better. And the only way you find out is, you you know, you test that out. Um, and, you know, that, that didn't work out too well. We could see that in the beginning of the season. Things weren't weren't going too well for him, and, and he was struggling in areas. Um, and the one thing with him, he's, he's super competitive. He's, he's a champion, as we know. And I feel like, you know, that got to a point where he said, like, look, that isn't working. The way I, I, I was thinking and the, and the little things I was that I changed that were supposed to help me didn't quite work out. And it's not a blame game. It's not like, oh, this someone did anything really wrong. It's just that direction did not help. And he, um, you know, he spoke to the team about it. And then the team obviously connected back with me. And then we, we connected. And like I said, I don't have a problem, especially if a guy, you know, has to, he's got to make decisions for himself. I mean, that's that's part of it. Um, and, 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 but I give him credit because he, he said, look, that wasn't working out. I need to get back to the way things were, the way things that, that worked before that worked really well. And, and also that, that group dynamic, even though, as we know, there's maybe a couple little areas that, that aren't ideal, but in the overall package, it's, it is what's, what works and has worked for him. So, uh, that's how it all, you know, reconnected and, uh, now he's back and, 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 you know, yeah, we're, we're working hard to try and, you know, um, you know, get back to, to the level that we know that he's capable of. And uh, it's tough. I mean, that, that crash obviously a week ago definitely also didn't help him. But I mean, that, that's part of the sport and you never know when that can happen. And it's never a good thing, you know. Yeah, that was scary. Absolutely. Uh, It's one of those things where um, I I, I don't like I haven't talked to Coop about it, but I assume he's Mm -hmm. either uh, just made a made a mistake coming out of that rhythm section. He ends up with uh, a 200 and some pound motorcycle with Chase Sexton on it uh, coming in hot. Uh, so that's going to put a little bit of a, a, a wrench into the, the, the next week's training. Um, and, and Coop has, he's had an upturn in his, uh, his, his results. I obviously, uh, you, as well as I know you get onto a brand new program. Uh, it's not instant, mm-hmm. but I think there is value in, in having that, that peace of mind that I know now I'm back on track. Like there's, even if there's not an actual physical change, you feel different. You have more confidence in knowing that I'm putting in the work. Uh, and, and I think sometimes that's enough to even, uh, help steer things into the right direction. Um, is that, do you feel that at all with, with Coop is just being able to, uh, sort of know that I'm back on the program that got me where I was at before. Um, and, and mentally that's a better, uh, uh, place to be in. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right there, Brad. Uh, he, 
I think it was a relief for him because he finally sort of, instead of wondering like, man, where am I going with this? It's, you know, is it, you know, where, you know, the, the constant up and down in a way. And, and uh, I felt like there was a relief for him when, when he did come back and he, and it was back to sort of what he kind of knew, you know, having, I mean, gosh, you know, we'd been together three years um, and right out of the gates, I felt like it was a little bit more comfort. And I mean, we saw Daytona, and look, Daytona's unique anyway, but I felt like there he was really, really riding well. Um, and uh, I, I felt, yes, that was a close one to where, you know, it, it, yes, it didn't go his way, but it, it could have easily, you know. So the the whole thing, I felt like the dynamic and where he was at was we were we, we were back on, on track. And, and yes, it is tough. I mean, when you're in season, you have a limited time during the week to make everything count. Um, and, and we do our best and, and then you go from there. But it, it, it was a bit of a bummer where I felt we were a little bit off, um, you know, at, at, at that last race. And, and, um, and unfortunately, yeah, and then he got caught out to, you know, make an, you know, an error. And, and one thing with him, you know, he never applies excuses. He says straight up when you look, that was my mistake. Um, I can't blame anyone. And unfortunately, yeah, he got hammered. But I always look at it, it could have been worse. Um, and yes, as he saw, and he's got a, you know, some slight, you know, decent injuries. I mean, he's definitely riding with some discomfort for sure, but it could have been, that could have been the end of the season right there. So at least, you know, he's, he's in, I mean, and, you know, every day he's recovering better and, and, and hopefully, um, you know, this next weekend will be a, a lot better than what we were this, this, this last weekend where he basically couldn't even do half the rhythm lanes, you know? So, uh, um, that's part of it, and, and 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 we'll go from there, and and keep striving to be better, and get get him back to where we all know he can be. Making improvements step by step. Now you have some uh, some additional awesome riders. Uh, R.J. Hampshire, obviously a true professional, a veteran in the sport, mm. uh, and I think if I'm not mistaken, you might have had a little bit of uh, experience with, uh, with Malcolm, uh, maybe not from a, a trainer athlete's point of view, but I, he obviously would have been around a little bit when you were working with James. Um, mm. like, like, like how, how much experience did you really have with Malcolm prior to taking him on as an athlete? And what surprised you about, uh, his abilities, um, physically, because, uh, he's quite the specimen, like the kid, he's pretty, he's, he's broad shouldered. He, he carries a yeah. lot of muscle mass in comparison to not a lot of other guys. Um, and, and I, and to like, based on, like, on his like watching some of his old races uh he actually has quite the uh like he's he's got the lungs of a lion if he if he if he wants to cultivate them um so like he he's like what's it like working with um with malcolm no i mean it's it's been good and and, and going back to you know i remember malcolm you know as james's little goofy brother in the and back in the day i mean i didn't really pay too much attention was obviously when i was with james I had my, you know, hand, had my, you know, it was a full schedule and had my hands full there. But and, and and Malcolm was around. I was always impressed that he was always, uh, his attitude was always unreal. You know, he was always happy. He had a smile on his face. He would, always, you know, he was very, very positive. Um, and the few times that I did get to see him ride back in the day, I was always impressed that man, this this guy does have some ability and talent. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I always used to just think in the back of my mind that, man, if he really wants wants it or or wants to really fully apply himself, 
he can he can do something and but that's kind of where it was left obviously because you know I I had you know my uh, you know hands full now coming full circle um I feel like he's got to that point and that's that's why he you know he wanted to come to the Rockstar team and and uh set up with them and link up with me uh you know he he obviously remembers from back in the day that things are yes it's that's not easy because I know I'm sure his brother would have mentioned that hey it's it's definitely not easy but I think he's ready and 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 he's he, he wanted that challenge and he's you know I feel like he's done a lot of you know different things and and ridden for a lot of different teams and different scenarios and you know supercross only or this or so he's kind of what I call been through the mill and he knows it's time and 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 he really wants it so it it's been a pleasure i mean look his attitude to everything has has been phenomenal that's one thing that has sort of really really impressed me is he he is always upbeat he he does apply himself the right way and uh, yeah, we've obviously been working harder, but the big thing is it, it is still so new to him. I think the amount and the load that is expected, even though he doesn't shy away from it, he it's still he's gone from doing probably a quarter of what he's doing now, and that isn't it is a big adjustment. So um, you know, I have to give him credit that he still is you know full on applying himself. I mean, I feel like we've had also a little bit of a rough run where things haven't quite gone his way. In fact, the way I analyze races for him is every one of them has been hard work. It's not like he's been given anything easy. Um, but I, I do believe that's, that's honing him and, um, and he will, he will win. It'll, it, it will come. He's got the speed. He's got the endurance. He's got the strength. As you mentioned earlier, he's a strong guy. Um, he's as tough as nails. So, I do believe that that'll come around, and and as I say, I'm excited. He's 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 a good guy to have around, and I feel like it, the group is really really solid um, with the mentality and 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 the different personalities, which is phenomenal. While we're doing a sport that is you know tough on on any given day. Certainly, uh, and and that's uh, just that's got to be the right approach, right? And uh, so last thing I have for you, I'll let you get on with the rest of your evening. Uh, you're an important guy. And the fact that you give me 40 minutes of your time blows my mind. Uh, but uh, and I do really appreciate it every time you come on the show, Alden. But uh, so you've been doing this for uh, in access of 25 years, training the absolute pinnacle of the sport. Um, how, how has your training method and, and, and ideology evolved over the years? I, we spoke off air about it sort of being mm. like the foundation of a house. The very like You can completely remodel the house, but the foundation is still there. Uh, the rooms might look a little bit differently. How have you sort of renovated your um, the, the method to your madness as far as uh, if, if maybe um, like if we could send you back in time, you, you, you do something a little bit differently with this athlete or uh, some of the things you've learned from those athletes have allowed you to help your, the guys you're working with now just that bit much better. Well, I think, you know, everything evolves. And when you look at it from the motorcycle to just the, the, the athletes that, up and, that, that, that come into the fold, um, it, the times are different. So I always look at it that, yes, there's still the basics that you have to put in place. And that's, look, the athlete has to be really fit. He has to be cardio fit. He has to be strong enough to ride this motorcycle. And then he has to have a good team behind him. And that's, you know, from the team to the suspension to 
the the dynamic of who's his close, you know, inner circle, the whole series. So that, that evolves depending on the athletes. Um, you know, we have a lot more technology now that we can utilize to analyze, and that's not what we had in, back in the day. Um, so I think one of the things is we we do have better you know, systems in place to monitor the progress of an athlete. And that's either through, you know, the lap timing, the videos, um, and then the data that comes from the motorcycle to help us, you know, with, with the athletes. And even to the training, you know, solutions, you know, back in the day, we, we just had heart rate. And, and, and now, we, we, you know, we, there's, there's lactate levels, there's power wattage for specific training. So there's so many different... Uh, scenarios that you can utilize to to help the athletes now but the dynamic of the bikes have changed so much and then I'd say the biggest thing that has evolved is that gone are the days where an athlete has his own place it's more now where you know a group has their own place you know obviously yes I'm affiliated with KTM Husqvarna group um, and then you've got you know Yamaha have, have bought their own facility um, I think the dynamic of good riders being put together, that's been a, a game changer and getting that balance together and maintaining that is, is a whole different avenue. And that's something we never dealt with back in the day. It was always, you were almost hiding from everyone trying to, you know, do your training. And it would always be at, you know, someone's facility. When I was with James, he had his own facility. When I was with Ricky, he had his own facility. You know, obviously, yes, I never trained Chad Reed, but he had his own facility. All your main heavy hitters pretty much back in the day had their own system and it was kind of on a lockdown. And, and you know, that's not the case anymore. Um, and with social media, there's so much stuff out there that that's changed the dynamic too. So I think as things have evolved, different scenarios, you, you, you've had to, you know, handle different pieces of of how things have developed but going back to your question is still the basics that the rider needs in order to become a champion and and and, and maintain that, that status for sure wow man it's really interesting to pick your brain about this stuff man we could go on for hours and, and that's why we're going to have you come on uh sometime during the nationals perhaps uh you you've got a a busy schedule so do appreciate you coming on the show tonight uh, alden always making time for us and always providing amazing insight to this sport that we love so much i really appreciate you coming on no well thank you brad and as i say keep up the good work that you are doing and and uh and say thanks for the invite and, and i look forward to the next one awesome man well do not hang up just yet but for podcast sake we're going to cut it off right there and off he goes alden baker an absolute treat to have him on the podcast one of the most decorated trainers to have ever set foot on a motocross track and uh and lend his tutelage to the racers that have benefited and won championships and now back to Denny Stevenson. And the international races was such a cool opportunity for uh, yourself as well as many other top flight pros that had an opportunity to make some extra money during the off season. Um, like how uh, lucrative was some of those races for you? What were some of your favorites to hit no matter how much the, uh, the asking price was to go over there? Uh, and do you wish you did more of it? 
you know, I, I think, you know, you look back at someone like a uh, career, like Jason Thomas, you know, he, he crushed it. You know, he was able to go, to do both, go over there, take it serious, makes a, a lucrative uh, career racing over in Europe. Whereas I think we took it a little bit more like, let's just go have some fun. You know, I don't know how well we're going to do necessarily because I, I, I never quite adapted to the, to the new bike or whatever, but you know, the first time I went over when I was like 17, I think with, with Doug Dubok, 17 or 18, I got invited to come over and race uh, a couple rounds in, uh, um, in Cairns and Townsville. And so Doug was kind of my guy. Doug was older than I was, and he, he'd been over there before. So we flew over to Australia. Uh, I rode 125 and 250 Cowies. Doug, I think, rode 250, just 250 class. And it was by far my best trip, most enjoyable trip. Uh, you know, I discussed a little bit on the Whiskey Show. You know, racing with uh, legends like Peter Melton and uh, some of those other Australian guys, and it was uh, you know they'd run your race, your qualifiers, your main events, and they have they have a match races, which was real popular in a lot of European Supercrosses, where you'd run one-on-one races. You know, Ram Cross was kind of my favorite, obviously with the dash for cash, but this was basically one or two-lap sprints where you're just one-on-one with a guy, and it really kind of showed. And I kind of came up with Ultra Cross, where you know a lot of aggressive riding, and so I was always enjoyed those one-on-one races because I, my theory was if you get out ahead of me, I'm just going to knock you down and, and to win this thing. And so the one in, in one of the one of the Australian around Cairns or Townsville, I, I I was racing with Peter Melton, you know, who's a god over there. And I come in with like two corners to go, and I just step off the back of my bike and the inside of this corner and just clean him out. And I win the race, and and I'm thinking like ultra cross, you know, I'm pumped, everybody's gonna be pumped up man, those Aussies were ready to come out of the stand. Like they were going to come lynch me and just hang me and drag me off into the, into the woods and kill me. And so I was a little shocked by that. I'm like, Whoa, you know, I'm still a kid. I'm kind of overwhelmed by this whole thing. I think I was not expecting the booze and the flipping off of the grandstand. So they lined us up again. You're like, Hey, that was a little aggressive. We're going to, we're going to give Peter Melton another shot at you. And I'm thinking, man, this is a terrible idea. This guy's going to kill me. So he actually lets me get the whole shot. And I'm like, oh, God, he's just going to destroy me in one of these corners. So I, I raced as fast as I could. He'd come flying up the inside one of the corners, and I just said, okay, you can have this one. Uh, I think it's better for public relations if you, if you beat me this time. But And then afterwards, I learned the true Australian way to party. You know, you go to a bar. You, uh, you do not leave that bar or pub or club wherever you're at, you know, with your T-shirt on. You know, everybody ends up in a dog pile. Everybody ends up podium spraying their beers. And everybody either, you know, remember those the old games, you rip sleeves off your buddy's t-shirt or oh, something. Yeah. Well, they, well, they just grab you by the collar and just rip the whole freaking thing off you. Off you. The old sleeve and monster. Some, I learned, yeah, then, you, you know, you walk into a room, you leave that room in utter chaos. And it, it kind of taught me how, how, to, how to experience life even more because, and that's why I've always been a fan, a fan of Chad Reeves. The Chad, I think, lived life to the fullest, you know, one best ever to ride a dirt bike. And, um, I just learned that this is how Aussies do it, then that's how I'm going to do it. And that's kind of how I, I lived the rest of my career, really. There you go. And, and uh, like, yeah, have, having some good times in arena cross as well. Um, something that like, I, I'm sure you guys had, uh, had the conversation about it on Whiskey is, is making the transition from uh, full-blown supercross and outdoors to basically being an arena cross specialist for quite some time there. Um, like, 
I, I think the and you also said, talked about it on show 100 of the Pulpamex show of I believe it was uh, none other than Mike Metzger who had passed you not once but twice uh, at the Glen Helen National where you turned to your dad and said I think I'm done. Uh, but uh, like what? Yeah, once and, you did... and, that, and that again, no disrespect to Mike Metzger. I just want to really play that out there. Just, you just know in your career that there's somebody you just don't feel like there's certain riders you just shouldn't get beat by. And, at that time in my career, I, the Great Western Bank uh, kind of team was falling apart financially. Yep. Uh, I was spending some money. I wasn't. I, was, I had a bad sum left over from Supercross uh, in '96 that season, and it was about basically 110 degrees at Glen Helen. You know, a track I don't think anyone enjoys to race on. No. Um, yeah, and Mike had passed me twice, and uh, I, I said, you know what? I just rolled down to my in the mechanics there, and my dad's like, "What's up?" I'm like, "You know what? I think we're done." And he looks at me, and goes, "Are you serious?" I'm like, "Yeah, I, I, I think I've had enough of this." You know. And he's like, all right. And he jumped on the back of my bike. We rode back to the truck, and uh, and that was pretty much it. And um, that night was another one at Throw's house. You had, you had the Fat Matt's Glen Helen after party, which uh SWAT team showed up at. And yeah, that was another night one. But but anyways, yeah. So I you get done with this. You just I was I was comfortable. You know, a lot of times when people end their careers and through injury or something in motocross, supercross, I was comfortable with what I was done with. Um, you know, I went back to stay at Throw's house for a little while, and. Um, then I got a call from her. my dad said, Hey, you know, Dave Analek from Tuff wants to, you, would like you to, was interested in sponsor you to come race for them for arena cross. And I'd raced a handful of arena cross over the years. You know, there's always, you know, Des Moines was one that was always close to the house, a couple hours from, from Omaha. Um, I'd gone south, raced a couple with Guy Cooper when Cooper was kind of gr- coming through the, uh, the ranks before he, he was a big name in pro. And, and Fro was just like 16, 17 years old as well. So I knew what arena cross was about, you know tight confines, four straightaways, four corners. Um, so when the read across kind of came up, I was like, well, you know, it's a way to extend my career and make some more money. And first thing I do is call Bud Man. You know, Bud Man's married. He's got a kid on the way. And I'm, I'm like, hey, Bud, you know, I think we should give up. It's time to give up the dream of chasing Supercross and motocross. You should come do this with me. And it took him a while to kind of convince him. But it's like, yeah, you know, I think we should do it. So as it turns out, it was a horrible idea. He went on to win, what, four or five titles and was my biggest adversary. But um, it, it was just a great way for anyone to extend their career. You know, I, I, I raced it from ni- 2000, or 97 to 2002, which was what, six more years of racing dirt yeah. bike and make it, making a living doing it. It was absolutely awesome. My kid was one of the best promoters to ever, ever lay out a series. Tons of fun, tons of trophies, dash for cash. You know, I think one year we went to Geneva even was one of the rounds. Um, I think we raced, you know, with racing four main events a weekend and 125, 250s, Fridays and Saturdays, throwing the dash of caches. We ran 72 main events a big one year. We ran 18 weekends. Um, you got time on the bike. But as I've always said as well, Arena Cross, when the Supercross trying to make Arena Cross the stepping program into Supercross, that's like trying to make a guy go race GNCC to race nationals. I mean, there's no comparison. You learn nothing. Arena Cross and Supercross, there's no crossover. You know, you're turning around a barrel lap times are 18 seconds or something crazy you know um it's a it's a, it was a whole nother world and i think that was what what made us so have so much fun with it is that a lot of guys would come in from supercross and think they're gonna kick our ass and we'd laugh and go man you're coming in the bull ring this is our world these days you know i think ramsey came over a couple times nick way uh, tedesco um you know mitch would send his guys over Ping. pedro gonzalez pedro you know pedro came in later and raced a series with us as well we were teammates uh, in 02 i believe you know, Heath Voss would come over, and Heath would do well, and, and they'd already show up for one round, so they didn't really get the you know the wet feet, their feet wet. So we just knock them down, and you know put them. I think Jason Thomas still laughs about. It. I think and he came and raced Jacksonville, Florida one year, and 
I just knocked him down to practice just to let him know, hey, this is where you're, this is where you're going to deal with all day and all night long, you know, and it did, you know, we had fights, you know, to be brawls in the parking lot, to be fights on the track. And then you just, and all of a sudden my kid go, Hey man, the 250 mains coming up. And we'll be like, Oh shit, we better go get our bikes and come back out and race. And in, in the one week, one, one breath, Mike's kind of yelling at us and the other breath he's winking going, yeah, you guys have put on a great show. And, and that's what arena cross was truly about. It was put on a great show. Um, you know, the fans were kicking their money for the dash for cashes. And as far as I was concerned at the time, as I said, on the whiskey show, come one, come all. It's a four lap race from Dash for Cash. As far as I was concerned, no one was going to beat him in four laps. You know, what is that? Less than two minutes of racing. Uh, again, on four, four corners and four straightaways, one section of whoops, one section of rhythm, and a finish line catapult. Come on, man, let's let's do it. And uh, I made a lot of good money in that. And uh, again, had a, just a, the, li- the time of my life. It was, it was incredible. Certainly. And they, honestly, it was a snapshot in time because I would argue that the Arena Cross Series has never been what it was back then uh, as far as star power and, and just and, and being its own thing. Like it's right now, Arena Cross sort of seems like it's like the minor leagues, whereas Arena Cross back then just seemed like, yeah, of course, it's 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 a uh, the it's indoor motocross in a smaller scale than Supercross. Um, but it, it had its own characters. And like you said, you couldn't just jump in there and just expect yourself to be able to uh, to produce results because you had guys like Buddy and yourself who who. Who were, who were bad dudes and uh, and knew how to race in those tight confines. And um, some of the characters surrounding with it, I, I found it absolutely inf- amazing. Maybe the fact that uh, they Mike actually... Jones, they they would, Hoop. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, Jerry like, Buell, Jimmy Gannis. I mean... Brad Hagseth. Yeah, when we came in, you know, Chad Pedersen, Cliff Palmer, um, you know, then was Josh Demuth. Yep. I mean, how we had Bradshaw show up. Bradshaw and, showed and, up on the 45 machine. Yeah. So once we five series, he showed up to race the series. At the first round in Des Moines, he didn't even qualify for the main events on Friday night. I mean, he was, that's how, like, whoa. Like, he's like, okay, this is a, a different mindset. I'm not just going to show up and be Damon Bradshaw. Of course, the next night, I think he won one main podium the other, if not won, won both mains. But, you know, that initial shell shock of, like, this is a completely different world than what, what, what anyone, any of us were ever used to um, was what made it so unique. And, again, like you said, all the characters and the aggressiveness. And uh, it was just a rock show all night. And, you know, I, I don't. I think after the par, after the race is Saturday night, everybody would stay up all night hanging out, and then we go to the airport, and then come back the next week on Thursday, and, and do it all over again. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a, a rock show, a rock tour. It, it was awesome. You know, I met my ex-wife there, <laughs> my son's mom. Um, you know, the great thing was the funny thing is that very first year we raced it by man at night '96 was the first year Honda came out with their perimeter aluminum frame and all that shit, and and we didn't even get we didn't even get the 250 didn't even ride the 250 until in the parking lot of that first race on Friday night in Des Moines. We broke it in in the parking lot, rode practice on it, and like, okay, well, how's it work? I'm like, well, this thing's a, an ironing board. That, that, that probably was the worst motorcycle ever to try and get on and race in, you know, in, within with, with like five minutes of track time. Um, but again, it was just what you did at Ray Cross. You just kind of pieced things together, and you, you went racing. That's that's what, exactly what you guys did, man. We we heard about your your last national. Right? Was that was that Glen Helen your absolute last national? That, yeah, Glen Helen '96, my last one. Yeah, I uh, I had raced. You know, that was they were still running Supercross and nationals, kind of overlapping. So I had okay. raced Glen Helen, you know, in in March or whatever. When Glen Helen or not Glen Helen, I'm sorry, Gatorback, Gatesville, was the first round. Uh, round two was at Hangtown, still during Supercross, and I remember. The last round, last round of Supercross was in Denver, and that's kind of when they slid the stands back, and we basically just went around the outside of the, of the football field because they didn't want to tear up the grass. 
And I, you know, we started out the season 96 in the jet, you know, the, the, and, uh, and then the money from Great Western didn't really come together. Um, Jim Castillo was, was awesome. He kept funding the team and helping help things go. But then the jet became a little bit too expensive. And, and so I just started to stand on the road with either my dad or the team or Jason, Grayson Goodman and I, uh, who's a good friend of mine from, you know, from Texas, who we went to Brazil with. I just rode around with him. He was a privateer. I just went with him in his van, kind of rode from race to race. You know, he's friends with uh, Robbie Van Winkle or AK Vanilla Ice. So we stayed at his place in Miami for a couple of weeks when we were down in Florida. It was just, you know, it was like I knew things were kind of wrapping up. Um, I took 20th overall in the points that year. I remember the banquet was on a, a flatbed trailer in the parking lot in Denver, Mile High Stadium, um, you know, a long way away from Vegas. I went up to the, the, the flatbed, picked up my 20th place check with a Coors Light in my hand, said, thanks everybody for, for Supercross. I think I'm going to go do something else now. And, um, and that's basically what I did. I, I interviewed for a job in, in California. I tried to see if I could be uh, the rider rep for uh, Arnett Goggles at the time, and that didn't go well. And then, obviously, we stepped in and did a ring cross. So this kind of is all over the place. I hope everybody can keep track of everything. We're definitely <laughs> jumping around. But um, that's just, you know, you come up with so many things and so many memories that just kind of hit you all at once and different things. And, yeah. So I hope everybody's keeping up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I asked you about that last national because I, I wanted to hear about the first time you'd ever lined up uh, as, as a, you'd mentioned a 16 year old kid uh, preseason. I like the, like they send Suzuki sends you bikes. Uh, like, I don't even know how they do it back then. Was it through a dealer or do they actually ship them to your house? And then like you get up on the line and you looked up and down the, uh, the line of a, of a national back then. Uh, I don't know exactly what year it would have been, but like uh, the backs of the jerseys would have read something like LaRocco, Cooper, Kadrowski, um, some of the absolute who's who and the uh, the the elite of the sport. Um, like the the late '80s was absolutely chocked full of talent, especially outdoors. Uh, what do you remember about your first national? Well, it's, it's uh, you know back then you could race. You know, you could race Supercross and some nationals and still race Loretta's. You were still considered an amateur because we, you were a pro sport licensed AMA rider and not like a, a pro license, however they did that. So, but my first national, you know, I was a team green rider all through amateur racing and stuff. And uh, I had raced, 87 was my first attempt in the national. And that's when DMC ran the satellite team for Factory Kawasaki. That's, I think, Eddie Warren, Rodney Barr. Um, Bader Manet at the time was kind of their, their 125 star riders. And so, and I was a DMC kid as well, Dave Miller Concepts. And so they allowed me to kind of come, come ride with them. And I, I was, I was, Millville was my first actual national and I would have been 87. I think I just turned 17 at the time, August, or was still maybe 16. And I, uh, I thought, man, I'm riding with these guys. I could keep up with these guys. I'm like, I'm thinking I'm going to get top 15 at this national. Millville is like six hours away from me. All my buddies are up there and stuff. You know, I'm ready to kick some ass, but they had qualifiers back then. So you had to run a qualifier and a last chance if you weren't the top 10. Right. And so I had to run a qualifier. And in the first, I get tangled up in the first turn and go down at my first national. I'm like, son of a bitch. So bike got kind of bent up. I rode like a lap, got the bike straightened out. I had to ride the last chance qualifier. I got a decent start in that, you know, terrible gate pick. And coming down the, the final downhill at Millville, you know, right before the finish line there, same, similar, very similar track. Um, I crash, tuck the front end of the rut and go down. I end up not even making my first national. You know, I'm, I end up walking around with my buddies watching the races in complete depression mode that I was going to, my anticipation and expectations of myself were so high 
that it just got ripped out from underneath me. So we regrouped, you know, did some, uh, finished out uh, the amateur career in 88. And my first national back was to, was the San Antonio national of 1988. It was like 110 degrees. Um, that's kind of the same time that LaRocco was like, you mentioned LaRocco, Larry Ward, um, Kudrowski, you know, Jason Langford, you know, all these amateur guys kind of turned pro around the same time. And it was a mutter. It rained, downpoured, humidity levels were like 90%. So my dad's an old drag racer, so he's very attentive to starting techniques and, and, and conditions and stuff like that. So I got qualified for it, getting lined up for the first moto. And at first, the start is just, it's like Loretta's, you know, axle deep to a Ferris wheel, disc deep. It's muddy as hell. Um, but everybody from the outside line is coming down where they're pushing their bikes. You know, all the mechanics were pushing the bikes. Everybody's walking down the very outside gate. Well, they got it all packed out there. My dad's like, hey, would you want to go to this very outside? I just walked down here, and uh, you pop out of, out of, that, out of the first out of the gate, and you go out, out, go out and get on that packed dirt. You're going to be money, and then just sweep in. I'm like, well, okay, I trust you. Let's see how it goes. So I, I, grab, I get out past the gate. I jump up on this packed dry dirt on the outside, and I did just what he said, man. I pulled probably three, four bike length, whole shot. I come blazing across the front of everybody. And whole shot my first national that well first national I qualified for, and proceeded to lead a lap. I fell over in a corner, and still got up and got a fifth. And I was just you know pumped, totally stoked on the whole deal. But the thing was back then, it's kind of similar to today. You know, the wild day they used to have like an hour break intermission. Well now, again you go one moto, two mo, you know two first motos and two second motos right back to back. So in other words, I'm dying in the pits. I got water bottles on my arms, you know, my neck, cold towel, ice pack. And I hear the horn go off for first call for the second moto. And I'm like, Oh, oh no, man, I'm not ready for the second moto. <laughs> I'm going to see, I'm on the line for the second moto. I'm kind of half cramping on my arms and stuff. Um, and I pulled off a 16th. So I went five sixteen, I think for maybe eighth or ninth overall. And, and it was awesome. And that just kind of set the path. Like, and, you know, I think LaRocco did like top five at Larry Ward. And those guys were started winning motos that first year you just start, you just feel like you belong, you know, as soon as you, you land and, and, and arrive and you're like, man, okay, this is what we can do. This is what I expect to do. Um, and I think a little different, I think the kids came in, all of us amateur kids came in and ran basically just WFO from the top of the drop of the gate to the checkered. And I don't think guys like George Holland and, and those guys who, who were winning national at that time, even Coop were necessarily running a WFO from the drop of the gate. I think there was a little bit of pacing involved, you know, and, you know, let's just kind of just just work it out, you know, until about the 15 minute mark and then drop the hammer where, you know, the guys I grew up with showed up and just started immediately winning. And because and, I think they were just, they didn't know any different. They just ran wide fucking open until the checkered flag. And I think that kind of changed the way the Nationals were ran um, and, 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 and were treated because it would, it's the only way I can explain it for the instant success that some of us all had, you know, Chicken and, and all those guys and Budman and, and, and again, Ward, it's just, I think that we came in and kind of changed how things were going because it's just like we were young kids and didn't know any different, you know? Certainly. No, you got, you guys definitely uh, cut from a different cloth. Uh, the toughness and uh, the work that went into uh, like being able to execute at that level, like you said, 16 year old kid, here's your flight. Make sure you guys are on time and good to go. That that's a, a responsibility and toughness that can only be cultivated by basically just giving uh, the type of responsibility necessary for that to happen. Like it's just, it's one of those things where uh, like obviously now it's maybe a little bit better of a situation because there's more support there. Uh, but 
if, if there's any benefit to the situation that you guys were in is that you guys had to grow up and grow up fast uh, and, and and be able to produce immediately. And a lot of you were able to do that, including yourself with a, in, with a championship in uh, the 125 class in 1990. That had to have felt good. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is just we raced. We raced every weekend. You know, yeah. I at four, at 14, I was flying, you know, from – I'd go to high school till Friday or Thursday, and then I'd jump on a plane. I'd fly to California, race the Golden State Series, you know, which wow. was like a national. You know, you'd, I was racing minis, and then, then I'd start riding minis, which was – they called mini pro. So we'd run on Sunday with the pro guys, you know, the 250, 125, and 500s, and then 80s. And then on Saturdays, I'd race 125 intermediate, at, you know, at 15 or something – and then I'd fly home Sunday night and I'd go back to high school, you know, for, for four days. And then I'd jump back on a flight. And, and, you know, I think that was a huge transition of just knowing that's different from today. Like a lot of these kids are growing up in camps. They, they race Loretta's, you know, they, we raced, we all raced. Like, like we'd race 50 weekends a year. Even when I raced nationals and I had a weekend off, I'd go home and race my buddies, race with my buddies at, lo- at a local race, or I'd go find a money race somewhere and, and go race. And, even when I was 12, 13, my dad, mom and dad would drive me, you know, we were at Omaha during the winter. We'd go down south, and that's how I met Emig. We'd go down to Missouri. We'd go down to Oklahoma, wherever it was warmer and had a track we could race. That's what we did. And uh, I think it just kind of gave you a different mentality. You know, all, even all the generation before us, you know, with, with, with Lachine and Healy and uh, Mickey Diamond and Holland and Keogh, all those guys, Rick Johnson, you know, they Wardy, they just they were racing all those Golden States. And then on off weekends, they go race at some type of Southern California race. I, I think that that's just a huge different mentality of the racing today. I think they're more prepared physically, but I don't think they're as strong mentally as, as you would get from racing competition and, and gate drops. There's nothing like a gate drop, you know. Certainly, and I think on top of that, uh, racecraft also suffers. It's just that you don't like uh, how often you find yourself with a bad start. How many times you find you with a good start? How many times you find yourself uh, with some really, really stiff competition? How do you handle it? Uh, like honestly, like even the fact that like yeah. even going through through the pack, like I know those local kids, they wax everybody, but eventually they have to pass them all again when they come through to, to lap people. And uh, as much as that might not be the funnest uh, experience in the world, there's something to be gained from it. So I, I think gate drops is if I, I was to add anything to the current situation in uh, North American amateur motocross would be more gate drops and uh, and more opportunities to sort of put these kids uh, like like the, the cream of the crop, get them to race more often uh, because I think that would, that would raise everybody's level. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And, you know, we've talked about it. We talked about it on the, with Pingree and Budman at the Whiskey Show. And, you know, Budman's a, a coach, and, and, and so is Dave, David does some coaching as well. And, you know, I, I, that's, a, that's a completely different thing too. You know, I, as a kid, I went to Gary Bailey schools, which I did learn a lot. But, again, you know, you're going to learn your most – when you're racing against competition, when you got a guy running in on you, when you got, when you got to go into a first turn, you know, if you crash, you got to come through the pack. You know, I just don't see the mental, not necessarily toughness, but just being able to deal with adversity in the middle of a race. You know, I think you just learn that from racing and dealing with it. You don't just learn that overnight from practicing it, you know, and doing a camp, you know, and just living at a facility and just doing laps every day. You just don't, you don't learn that's not the same. You know, I think, you know, I read that interview uh, that they did with Larry Coker, not Larry Coker, um, the star manager. Team manager Jeremy and he Coker. talked about Jeremy Coker. Yeah. And he talked about having so many riders available for, for them all to ride with, all the star guys. And I think even though they're not necessarily racing, I know they're doing gate drops probably with all these kids and everybody together. And, you know, when the tracks are getting beat up, you know, they're not perfectly, you know, the tracks aren't perfectly groomed. And, 
I think that that is a huge thing for these guys to be down in Florida where the tracks do get, get beat up. And I think Anderson kind of covered it. Another interview, he talked about riding in California and I, you know, where Kenny's even been, you know, the California tracks, those supercross tracks, the team tracks are they're made out of concrete. They don't quite get beat up like an East coast supercross does. And one that we've seen at Detroit and Indy that runs 27, 28 lappers, you know, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for what the way stars presenting themselves and, and, and doing things with, uh, as a, you know, bringing in all these amateur kids and all those one twenty or two duty kids and all their four duty guys. You know, like he said, I think there's 24 kids out there one time, 40, 24 different riders riding together or something crazy like that. And I think, again, that's, you're riding with more than just two or three guys. I think that there's, they're not exactly the same as gate drops, but it certainly can't help. And it definitely has helped with their bikes, their bike development and riders knowing how the track's going to break down a little bit as well, you know? Absolutely. And then on top of that, like say you're at a, at a riding facility and like the cream of the crop is, is spread out all over the country, but, and you can compare yourself against the guys who are at your facility, but what if the guys at your facility aren't the, the absolute top, you see it all the time with certain guys who, uh, they dominate their age bracket, but maybe that's just not a very deep age bracket. And all of a sudden they turn pro and they shit their pants. Like, I think the diversity of racing yeah. different age groups and different racers and different soils, all that, that can only benefit someone. I think, honestly, once he finally uh, gets gets rid of the injury bug, I think that's where Max Voland is actually going to uh, to be able to make some real inroads because he was able to go over to Europe, do some riding over there. I think his dad believes heavily in, in him getting a lot of gate drops as well back when he was uh, um, training full-time as an amateur. Uh, and I think that's the right way to go about it. No, a hundred percent, you know, and I grew up with talent, you know, um, we raced, I raced the Owen brothers and ultra crosses and, and got to experience right. the craziness and craziness and the passion of, of both them with Tyson and Talon. Um, and then I, you know, Talon was one of the guys I was racing with in the nineties, you know, and he, when I crashed in Tampa and caught up the second, he, he got his first victory that night and, and then or Orlando it was, I think Orlando or Tampa, one of them. And, and I know what, you know, how hard Talon worked in his career and how serious he took it. And, uh, you know, when I'd see him at, at, over, at off, you know, after we quit racing and stuff, and he always had that good smile, but he, he still looked lean and fit, you know, like he looked like when I was racing him. And, and then he went to Europe and then he, uh, you know, came back and, and, and challenged Ricky, you know, at, at Glen Helen that year when he was on an FMF Honda. You know, I think Max has definitely learned a lot from his father, as, as a lot of these kids have from their dads with Deegan and everybody. But it, it was definitely a much different mentality of, you know, when you go to Europe, at that you know back when we were it was because you know there were no other opportunities and you had to just suck it up find a different path to your career like osborne did and i think it it, it finds a whole new strength inner strength mental strength that that riders that even myself and us who, who raced our careers in america never had to, to to deal with those type of adversity and i think that's max like you said is definitely it's rubbed off to him and i'm it's really disappointing to see him get hurt these supercrosses you know, he may have jumped in, you know, he might have thrown him to the wolves a little soon in Supercross being a 16, but, um, you know, he was phenomenal outdoor season and, and still learning. And uh, I, I agree. I, I look for big things for him to come for sure. Awesome, Denny. Well, this has been fantastic. Like I said off the cuff here, uh, when we got things started, if you haven't already listened to uh, Denny's interviews on the Whiskey Throttle Show, one with himself and De and uh, 
Buddy Antonez, as well as a Jeff Fantasevich, four hours of story time with uh, yourself and Jeff. Go check out those podcasts, and then uh, and some of the stories we talked about today might make a little bit more sense, a little bit extra insight. Uh, I really appreciate you giving me some time to finally come on the podcast and, and chit chat, and I hope that uh, some down somewhere down the line you'll want to come down and uh, maybe have yourself and uh, and um, Buddy on as well. Absolutely, brother. I, Brad, appreciate your patience. That- and finally uh, getting together on this. And uh, hopefully I'll run into you. I'm assuming, I'm assuming you'll be at the uh, donations at Redbud. Come oh, September, I'll be right? there. I'll, I'll be trackside. Yeah. Well, let's plan on meeting up there and grabbing a beer. And uh, thanks again for everything. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Absolutely, my friend. You have yourself a great rest of your night. Do not hang up just yet. But for podcast sake, we're going to cut it off right there. Boom. That's episode 849 of the Big MX Radio Podcast. Demi, Denny Stevenson and Alden Baker on the Big MX Radio podcast. That was so much fun. I absolutely loved having both of those guys on. Uh, they are an absolute treat. Uh, and actually quite the dichotomy between the two of them. Uh, Denny not known at all for his training as an athlete. And uh, Alden, obviously, he's Alden Baker. Uh, he's uh, basically the gold standard when it comes to uh, trainers. And you guys have heard me uh, to go on and on about him in that regard. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. Um, continue to uh, like, show, like, follow, share. BigMXRadio.com on inst- uh, as well as on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, hopefully you find me on Twitter as well. I love ch- uh, chopping it up on there as well. Um, for uh, for Garrett Rockley in uh, down in the states, or uh, Jonesy in down under in Australia, or uh, uh, Deanna over in Alberta. Appreciate everybody who takes the time to listen, as well as Kieran McCullough or uh, most likely Sean Wedge. I'm I'm sure you're on the the treadmill right now, Sean. Just getting in your miles, getting ready for the the season. Looking forward to heading down south to uh, watch some sprint car racing with you, as well as uh, spin some laps at uh, uh, the Dream Track out in uh, in Sommerfeld. So. Um, appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen. Hopefully you're also enjoying Big MX Radio Trivia. All of these podcasts are brought to you uh, by Phoenix Handlebars as well as Fox Racing Canada, Get Shit Done Coffee, and Guts Racing and Throttle Timepieces mixed in there as well. Uh, we are also going to be working uh, closely with Throttle Syndicate going forward for uh, some graphic kits, so look out for some stuff on that end as well. And uh, if you happen to be in the Selkirk area, go check out 204 Skate Shop. You're going to have the coolest duds uh, if, you, if you're not already yeah, looking uh, good head to toe from our friends over at Fox. Um, go play Big MX Radio Trivia, free trivia game that we play every single day, and every correct answer enters you to win monthly prizes. Uh, and next week, Friday, we will announce who our uh, winner for March is. All you have to do is answer a single question right, and you've uh, you've been entered to win. Uh, and obviously, if you answer mul- multiple questions in, that's how many times you've been entered to win that prize for that month. So enjoy it uh the questions are sometimes they're easy sometimes they're hard uh sometimes they're a bit tricky but uh it's a lot of fun to play and i get a lot of good feedback from that stuff so uh enjoy you guys the rest of your day and i appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast thanks again